Hello, and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sachs. And I'm Lori Sachs. And today we're joined by Mary Cole from Cambridge, England. One of the great gifts of the last year doing this podcast has been all the wonderful people we have met to share their stories, to learn from their stories, this community that we found. And today, meeting Mary Cole was just such a gift. She's such a delight, uh, brilliant and, and beautiful human and advocate and a lovely mother. And I'm happy to call a new friend. Welcome, Mary Cole. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, good afternoon. It's lovely to be with you. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we go into any questions? Okay. Um, I'm Mary Cole. I live in Cambridge in England. Um, I'm married to Jason, who's a research scientist. Um, My background is in education. Um, I work at a special school in Cambridge, which um, caters for 200 students aged from 3 to 19 with um, a variety of disabilities. Um, uh, Prior to that, um, until 2011, I was a mainstream music teacher. but now I work in special education uh, part-time. Um, I'm mother to three children. I have a daughter who is um, 19 now. She's just preparing to go off to university to study languages. Our middle child, Benjamin, has Down syndrome. He is going to be 14 next month. And our youngest is 12. What did you know about Down syndrome before Benjamin was born? I'm ashamed to say pretty much nothing. And that was me being a classroom teacher for, you know, about a dozen years before Benjamin was born. And I had, you know, taught uh, students with a variety of disabilities, but had never come across a student with Down syndrome. And I guess uh, it's a sort of reflection on the time I grew up in that I'd never met anyone with Down syndrome before Ben was born. So, yeah, (laughs) Uh, it was a huge learning curve at the time. He was also a postnatal diagnosis. Um, we were given a very low probability of having a child with Down syndrome. So yeah, the first initial reaction as it is for many new parents was shock because I absolutely didn't know what it meant for us as a family. I didn't know what it meant for Ben. I didn't know what it meant for us. So, um, I mean, one of the things in the all the fog of them delivering the diagnosis, one of the things that stuck in my mind was the they go to mainstream school now um, because I thought, well, that's news to me because I teach in mainstream school and I hadn't met anyone with Down syndrome. Um, and, and the situation in, in Britain at the moment is there are increasing numbers of students with Down syndrome going to secondary school in the mainstream sector, but it's very common for children with Down syndrome to start in mainstream school and then maybe as they get older to go into special education. It's a varying picture according to where you are in the country. And I see both sides of it because obviously I work in a special school. So, um, you know, for some students, it's absolutely the right thing. And for others, you know, it's an incredibly individual thing. I think Ben is very fortunate in that our local school is actually extraordinarily well geared up towards meeting his needs. And that is not the case for every school in every district. So we are lucky. And there's about half a dozen students. It's a big school with about 1,400 pupils. and there's about half a dozen students there with Down syndrome, which is unusual. That's, you know, that's quite rare for a mainstream secondary school. I, you know, I, I would say there's probably many schools in the country where they've never had a student with Down syndrome. Yeah. Well, that's definitely been our experience with Liam when he was going to school. That was Stephen's question is, we know there are children with Down syndrome. Where are they? Why aren't they in the classrooms that we're looking at, the the inclusive classrooms? I would say don't feel ashamed that you didn't know anything. We we didn't know anything either as far as what to expect, except for just like you said, is the only images and, and things that were ever presented to us were very negative and hopeless, including the way the diagnosis was delivered to us and how everything shifted in the hospital after that, which we want to talk to you about because I know that that was something that you then uh, started to work with doctors on as far as education goes, I think that's what we see here, that shift that maybe children are welcome in kindergarten, and then there's 
our experience has been with Liam, that hard push to get him out of the classroom, to get him into a special day class, to take him off curriculum, which is what we really fight the school system on and supporting Liam and, and what we're hoping will change and is changing. Yeah. In the States, or at least in California, the, the way it works is, um, there's a, a special day class possibility for kids that need some extra help, but that is they're actually pulled out of a classroom with their peers and they're put in a classroom and all the kids in that classroom have a disability or have a need. The classroom that is vary. usually kind of a, it varies. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's kind of in a, in maybe a temporary type of building kind of uh, on the other side of campus and they don't eat at the same times. They don't interact at the same times. And, and I think you could have children on campus uh, that, uh, typical children would never even come across. And, um, and then you're back in the boat of what you were saying, how you grew up and also how we grew up too, is we didn't know anybody with Down syndrome more. The inclusion Liam's, model for us yeah. seems to be nice. It's not great for everybody. I mean, like you said, there's some kids that do need different kind of education, but uh, an inclusion model just is so good for everybody in, in just getting along. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that strikes me, I get quite emotional when I collect Ben from school sometimes because I kind of think, why can't all schools be like this? Because um, it, it's quite a special setup. They have, um, they do have a um, enhanced resource unit within the school. To give you a bit more background about Ben, he he does actually have fairly complex needs. Um, he doesn't have very much speech. He has complex medical needs, so he has celiac disease and he has impaired hearing and severe asthma. So you know, there's quite a lot going on for him. And I think he is right at the boundaries of um, what can be catered for in mainstream. But because he's seen an environment where he's welcomed and they have that skill to deliver programs that suit him. Um, the way it works is that he doesn't study uh, modern foreign language for those lessons he's pulled out and he does have foundation numeracy and literacy and some other curriculum enhancements and he has um, some special physical education PE input um, that has changed slightly since COVID came along but um, that's so he does he does mainstream PE alongside his peers but he also has extra time where he does swimming. So it's good for his physical needs as well as his confidence in all sorts of areas. Um, but for all other lessons, he's in mainstream classes. So he has a one-to-one -one supporter who helps with, the, you know, the teachers are differentiating the work, but he needs that one-to-one -one support in order to access the curriculum. And, you know, and it is working very well for him. As you said, it's great for the other students as well, because nobody bats an eyelid at his school if someone's in a power wheelchair or, has Down syndrome or, you know, um, and wouldn't society be so much better if schools are all working on that model? It really would. It's, it's, it is, you know, it works for everyone. It's not just for um, the people needing to access the greater support. It's the whole student community that benefits. What grade is he in? Um, he is in year eight, but he had what's called here an overage transfer. So um, he's actually a summer baby. So when he was right in kindergarten, he repeated the very first year of school. So he should be in a year higher than he actually is. So he's actually the oldest person in his year group, which is quite funny. This is a great model for the school. What is? Can you tell me what the school is called? Yeah, it's called Impington Village College. And it's a very interesting school for lots of reasons because it's a state secondary school. Um, it was one of the first schools in Britain to adopt international baccalaureate for sixth form. Um, but at the same time, it also has a sixth form for special needs students. So they, they work on life skills. They do other qualifications on offer, ASDAN, for example, um, foundation qualifications, life skills stuff. So, you know, it's a, it's a very, very interesting. And also there were a number of schools dotted around Cambridge in, in the county of Cambridgeshire, which were set up kind of around the time of the Second World War and had this really interesting model that they were community schools that weren't just there to benefit the students. They were delivering programs of adult education in the evening. And, and you know, it's a really interesting history to the school. And I think part of the thinking behind it was actually to enable people with physical disabilities, but um, without necessarily any learning disability to be able to access a curriculum that was more appropriate for them. And, you know, on site, it has the whole, you know, they have the, those facilities for physio, they have, you know, there's tracking on the ceiling for people who need it, we have changing places, it's, it's a really, really good model. And, uh, you know, I so wish it would be there for every school, because it really isn't. 
I don't understand why other schools don't adopt this kind of model because what tends to happen, I feel, is then when you have a child who comes in who has a, a different need, you're starting from scratch with every single child. And there's so much, there's so much work that goes into here. I don't know if you have IEPs there, but here we have what's called an IEP, you know, individual education plan. There's so many meetings and everything is created. And if it was just something that was in place, first of all, I think just for society, it creates an inclusive foundation for our society to start thinking with an inclusive mindset from go. And then as a child who has different needs that maybe people can't see, there's not such stigma put on difference and things. I just, I just don't understand why it's not something that's more accepted or written into the foundation of our education system. Of course, there's a, a cost, but, but my the argument would be there's a cost to not delivering. You know, the needs don't magically go away because the economy is in a mess. So if, if you don't deliver the cost now, you're kind of maybe paying for it further down the line. So, I mean, for a good example of that is there's loads and loads of um, evidence to show that early intervention helps with children with Down syndrome. So if that's in place, that can really enhance every area of their life and um, create the support that's needed for families as well. Um, because, you know, our children don't come with a, a manual. So... But there's also a cost. It's not like the method that's being adopted doesn't have a cost. Like the IEPs, they have a cost. And starting over every time, it's like every time you were going to bake a cake, you threw all your ingredients out and then you said, I'm going to bake another cake. I'm going to, I have to go to the store and buy everything all over again. And that seems more costly to me instead of just making it the way that we support to support each other, to create that, to educate. I remember when, when Liam was born, that was something that was said to me there's some place where you can put him um, in the education system. I've had teachers say, well, he's just here for socialization, correct? And well, if he was here for socialization, we'd go someplace else and not spend six hours at a a non-adaptable, I don't know. I think it's just at the mindset. And I feel, I feel like it's starting to change. Yeah. And I love this school. I love this school that that Benjamin goes to. How amazing for you to see it too, with your time as uh, in education to see where it's come from. I wish this was everywhere. This sounds wonderful. It really sounds wonderful. And, and the thing actually just to mention as well is that um, it does have tremendous, you know, schools are under huge pressure to deliver academic results. And it actually is one of the top state schools in the country for academic results. So it demonstrates that it doesn't have to be at the expense of, you know, excellent results. I think that's the challenge that happens is that people feel that inclusion is is going to affect the other but students. The quality of the education. The, the quality of the education. Even in kindergarten, I know that parents were very curious why Liam was in in their child's kindergarten class. And it wasn't like, oh, why are you here? It was more like, why is he in this class? Do you know? Like with the fear of even as early as ABCs that there would be some you know, effect on, on their child. And mm, there was a great effect. Great it was effect a really great child. effect, right? Yeah. It was uh, a really they... great effect, right? Um, you mentioned mindset and I, I firmly believe though, I mean, I did talk a little bit about cost, but I think that mindset and, and the whole kind of ethos of the school is absolutely vital. Thinking about Ben's primary school, um, he didn't go to our local school for for some of his primary education. He went to our local kindergarten school, but um, unusually, the school from age seven to eleven is actually a different school in our village. Um, many schools go straight through from four to eleven. And whilst our village school is a really outstanding and good school, it just wasn't a good fit for him. So I, I looked at a lot of schools and that was a very, very interesting venture because the attitudes we came across were quite varied from school to school. You know, if the head teacher is showing you around and saying, oh, well, mainstream education rarely works for a child with Down syndrome beyond year four, it isn't going to. <laughs> you know, if the, if the leadership of the school is, is having that attitude, you know, um, the school he did end up at had a really, really, really embedded ethos of catering for children of all needs. And it, it struck me the minute it wasn't the school we expected him to go to. Actually, we were looking at a different school which had quite a good reputation for helping students with hearing impairments. And he at the time, I mean, his hearing is much better now, but at the time his hearing was much worse than it is. 
And we thought this would be a great fit. It had a great reputation locally for inclusive education. And when we went, they were kind of exasperated at, oh, it's another child with complex needs. We really can't cope with this. And I was kind of glad in a way that they were honest with me. They didn't kind of pretend they'd be able to cater for him, but it was a huge letdown and, and very difficult to deal with at the time. So the school he ended up at was the one where I had the visit. And then they, they said, oh, please come back and bring Benjamin. And that was the only school of all the ones I visited that actually wanted to see him. And when we did visit together, that was a lovely eye-opener because everybody in the school spoke to him. The children spoke to him, the head teacher spoke to him, the teachers, the teaching assistants, the dinner ladies, everybody spoke to him. And it wasn't a kind of speaking, you know, through me, it was speaking to him. They were treating him as an individual and that welcome was just kind of what sold the place to me. And it was absolutely the right decision. And I think you know, it's what's kept him in mainstream education, because as I say, his needs are pretty complex. You said you were relieved that they were honest with you. So you could go somewhere where your child, your child was welcome and wanted, because you know, you know, the truth is, is that that is the only way they're actually going to really get the support that they need, that they're at, they have a chance at getting an education, is if someone wants them there. And that means school to school and classroom to classroom and teacher to teacher. And I think teachers need to be more honest. It's their job and it's the law to educate my child. But there needs to be some inner communication where teachers are more honest. And if they're not going to welcome my child, that should be communicated and my child should never step foot in their class. Um, we had a guest that reminded us uh, that she had an experience where it was the same thing of having a teacher who didn't really want to support their child. And she reminded us that the question is, then why would I want my child there? Why would we want our child in a class for six to eight hours a day with somebody who doesn't want them there and isn't going to support them? Because that sends so many different messages to them and to all the other students. And it can single-handedly deflate any benefits that the inclusion model may have introduced because kids pick up on, we have a lovely teacher right now, and it's actually the first time since kindergarten that we actually have our son supported. And she's so encouraging and so supportive. And what's happened for the first time since we've been in distance learning even, that we hear other students, other students encouraging our son, come on, Liam, answer, you're very smart. And it just shows you that I mean, it's just the truth. It's I, I, it's, it's really not, beautiful to see yeah. these kids that are, you know, nine, 10 years old, and they're learning something that I didn't even have the opportunity to learn. So when I became an adult and would see someone with a disability, how would I know how to respond and act to that person? I, you know, or the, or what I learned was don't interact, you know, because it's like an us versus it's an, it's a separation, right? Right. I, those, even those if it's special just day this classes. grade for these kids, it's, it's going to carry t through their whole life. And it's, it's really nice to see every day. Yeah. It's so important. And it's so great that you said that, that the, the appreciation we have when people are honest with us of how they're, if our child is welcome, because you know, when you get past how it should be, like we know it should be an inclusive environment. We know that there should be no prejudices or discrimination, but we also know it's there. So there's this balance as a parent on this journey to say, we know how it should be. We know what we're striving for, but the reality is what's in front of us, because we can't really change what we want to change until we can look at what's in front of us. And just as horrible as it is, just accept that, okay, that's where it is right now and then find our power to change it. You know, with Liam's education, we've learned that we have more of an impact, you know, up until this teacher. So we learned to try not to be frustrated that he wasn't being taught while he was in the classroom, and we could do it at home. We could just work with him intensively at home. And I think it's very important for there to be some sort of honesty. You know, schools receive grants for, you know, the support of IDEA, don't take the money if you're not going to support our children, right? Like, do, just don't do it. And uh, I love it. Yeah, good job uh, finding the right and school. And really for good, because that's hard. It's really hard. That had to have been emotional as well, you know? It's, it's a really hard thing to see. It's really hard to take your ch this beautiful human that's your child with so much potential and go from place to place and, and see first handedly that 
you know, maybe they're not welcome. Maybe their belief of your child is different than yours. And I know that's a really hard journey to take, to just even absorb all of that. So good job for you to really stick it out. And I don't know if I had the, like, I, I know that when we were looking for uh, trying to get Liam in an uh, inclusive classroom for kindergarten, I mean, it took a great toll on me. I didn't, I was at the end. So I don't, it's not easy. And I commend you for it. With Ben's case, we were extraordinarily fortunate in that the job I had, I was working part-time when he was born. And I, I mentioned to you earlier about the complete kind of having no idea what the future held for us. And one of the first things I did when I got home from hospital was contact the nursery when my daughter had been. There was a lovely Montessori nursery on the school site. And I genuinely didn't know, because I knew nothing about Down syndrome and how people with Down syndrome were supported, I genuinely didn't know if he'd be able to attend nursery. So one of the first kind of emails I fired off in those early days was, you know, what do I do? Can Will you take him? And they were like, absolutely, yes, we will. And they were amazing. And we were fortunate in that he started kindergarten school with that really firm foundation of having been at, the, at a very outstanding um, setting, which totally catered for his needs. And, and my sister is actually a trained Montessori teacher, and I haven't actually appreciated that it actually started out as a programme for children with additional needs. So, um, and, and it been so successful that it kind of transferred into mainstream so maybe that's why it was such a suitable program for Ben but it it, uh, it was just a place full of happiness and full of allowing him to explore and be himself and do things at his own pace and promote his um, independence I mean a really good example of that is you know when he got his celiac diagnosis that the nursery manager's mother was baking gluten-free food for him so he'd have you know, he could he wouldn't be excluded at meal times. He could join in and have all the same food. They got him a special, I don't know what you call it, but something goes around the, the side of a plate so he could carry his own meal like all the other children did, which is really hard for him because actually just, you know, his his mobility is not great. So age three and a half, walking with a plate of food was quite a challenging thing for him to do, but they provided him with the tools to do it. And you know he thrived and I think that was a big factor in the fact that when he started school it wasn't a huge shock to him he was ready to to be there so it was great. That's so lovely and encouraging. And as I say it was so affirming in those early months to get a message to say yes of course we'll take your child. I mean I, I think back to those days I don't think about it very much now but um, it was kind of I guess Ben was about 18 months old before my first thought when I woke up every morning was, you know, my child has Down syndrome. It was a long time before I got through that, readjusting to what my life was going to be like. And to have had that kind of affirmation really early on was was a huge help. I, I hope they just, maybe they can just in, embed and infest the entire education system because... Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds marvelous. It's it's but just it's really how, encouraging it's and It's how we, we should treat each other. I mean, just how we should treat each other in society. It's and it that, goes back to like when you said you received, when you received the email of yes, of course, just even on a personal level of how kindness makes a difference in each other's life. I, they probably don't understand the weight of that acceptance of how much it lifted you. And I think that that's also something to think about in life, that if we show kindness and kind words and acceptance and inclusion to people, it, it changes. It really changes the fabric of our society in every way. First of all, Mary, thank you so much for your honesty. Because uh, I think having a child with Down syndrome, I personally section off. You know, like I have that, that mom that's on one hand accepting my child in every way where they are. On the other hand, trying to support and push him to his potential. You know, you have what your challenges are in society and daily life. And then the person that not you, you don't present, but the focus you shift when you go out into the world. You know, I don't bring the challenges every time into a conversation. I bring what I want to create. And it's hard sometimes to be honest some of the feelings and fears and thoughts, those are so hard for me to look at. But I think that when we share them, it it helps other people because we all have those feelings. We all have those thoughts. And when you said it took a year and a half of waking up before you stopped thinking my child has Down syndrome, 
I thank you for sharing that because it's a... It's, I had forgotten what a weight that was because we talk about it as so long ago, you know, and, and, you know, we talk about the diagnosis and what it was and what we wanted it to be, you know, like how it was presented. Uh, but I don't think we concentrate enough just remembering the weight and that there's parents that are going through that and a year and a half has <laughs> But happen. because the information wasn't out there, it's because the stories that were out there, um, for me, the way the news was accepted, the way the news was presented, the, the shift in our circle, that's what creates that fear of every morning waking up and, and wondering what this is. Because in any movie that you watch, if something's happening and all of those shifts are taking place, you're looking at, oh, something bad is coming down the pike. And I think that's what it created inside of me was... Well, if all of this is happening, then this must not be good. Uh, and that's when we can really talk about where that starts is at the delivery of the diagnosis. Because there are a lot of things I don't know anything about. And when people start to talk to me about them, definitely the way they talk to me about them uh, infers on how I will feel about it. And that is a challenge in our community, the way we receive our diagnosis even before the diagnosis, that want for the medical profession to know. To test. To yeah. test. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could share how you received your diagnosis and then talk about you had worked, you worked with doctors on how to. Um, I haven't done great deal of training. I think, yeah, I've been involved with um, a training session locally. Um, we have a program where we sort of share it out uh, um, amongst the parents. Um, to talk to, it's mainly midwives actually um, that we talk to. Um, I wish that the training was mandatory because I think you get people who come to this training because you know we're already pushing it at an open door. They they're kind of aware that they need to be more aware, if you like. And it's not those people we need to be reaching. It's the kind of um, the consultant who's still delivering the very medical model of you know won't walk, won't talk, maybe won't do this, that, and the other, and that's. You know, it's still happening. I know it still happens. I think things have shifted quite a bit since Ben was born in that, well, I suppose I didn't really do social media then, but there's so much more out there about lived experience of families um, that maybe wasn't available then. And I think my our experience of being, you know, put in a side room and given a load of outdated leaflets. And, um, you know, they, they did deliver the diagnosis fairly sensitively, but it certainly wasn't delivered as good news. So it was it was tough those days in hospital. Um, it was you know, and I, I had a cesarean with Ben because it was a breech birth, so I wasn't particularly well myself. So I was um, recovering from this, you know, huge surgery and the shock of unexpected news was wasn't easy. Um, yeah, it was tricky times. But uh, I think I mean what's happening. Um, we have I think it wouldn't change a thing. It might not be, but I know that there are organisations in Britain that are now providing welcome packs for new babies with Down syndrome. You know, what you so need to hear is congratulations amongst all the other things. You need up-to-date information about what it actually means, about what, you know, lived experience, not worst-case scenario. But you just also need to be congratulated on your baby. You know, it's it's... Um, I did have people phone up and say how sorry they were, and that was actually, I found that very difficult to deal with because he hadn't died <laughs> he was my gorgeous baby it was you know I mean I, I, did, I never I, I'm thankful that I never experienced what some I gather some parents do experience that I never had any difficulty bonding with them and actually once the diagnosis was delivered when he was three days old um, actually it kind of made me feel hugely protective of him really more than anything but um, you know as I say it, it's common to you know, people probably can go through their whole lives and never meet someone with Down syndrome. Not knowing how to react to the situation is difficult. I think it's improving. I think that, you know, for instance, we've just had, I don't know if you have this in America, there's a program called Line of Duty, which has huge following, um, you know, absolute record ratings, 12 million people watched. Um, and the latest series, they had a character with Down syndrome. There's many more characters on television it's still nowhere near enough. I'd love to see so much more representation, but you know, you get big department stores have models of you know children modeling uh, who have Down syndrome. I mean, obviously I'm more aware of it because I'm within that community. So I, I do see 
you know, lots of posts on Facebook and stuff. But it's slowly getting there, but there's a lot more to do. And I think actually um, people with learning disabilities in general, not just people with Down syndrome, are hugely unrepresented in, in you know, the arts and television and the media. So I think that would help. Yeah, we don't get that show, but I have seen on online Tommy Jessup was starring in it. And uh, we actually had our second interview with Julianne Robinson, who directed him in a movie called Coming Down the Mountain. And so we're fans of his, and it's really good to see him on, on such a big show. I mean, that's, a, that's like the number one show in, in Britain, I think. Yes, it's, I mean, it was huge, huge. You know. <laughs> I do think that things are changing as far as the inclusion. I know the inclusion model, and I know over here that we're seeing more of a push for all abilities for everyone to be present and presented. And I think the importance and what I actually am seeing is not just to be represented, but to be represented in a full light, in a positive manner. And I think that's the difference now than even when Liam was born, because when Liam was born, there was maybe one or two programs that we were guided towards. And it wasn't positive. It, it wasn't anything that dismantled my fear. And I like that now, yeah, we, I think we are seeing a shift in the media and... In, in the community, in the world, the inclusivity of, of all people pushes productions when they're doing TV shows or movies to be conscious of the group that's being represented and to try to represent the group the way the group wants to be represented. And I'm glad that that little bit of pressure is there. Because it also has other benefits, just like the benefit of having an inclusive classroom that that has on our children. That Because when you look, you're going towards those little pre-K and kindergarten minds. What seeds are you going to plant that are changing our society, right? Are you going to plant those ones of inclusion and kindness and love? Because that's what we want. And everybody wants it because everybody... <laughs> Every human being wants to feel included, right? That they're a part of something. But one of the benefits I see is there's a show over here called Atypical. And it's, a, it's about a boy with autism. And my daughter has binged watched that show all the way through. This is She's going on her third time. And it's because not only are, is she seeing his journey, the impact on the family, his school. Also, people get an insight as to what others are going through. So when you say someone's not allowed in your classroom, this is the effect it has on them as a human. This is the effect it has on the people that are surrounded by him. But the dynamic that really affects our daughter is to see the effect it has on his sister because she is a sibling. I feel like what I see in our daughter's journey is she has friends with siblings and her her reality is so much different because there are certain dynamics of that relationship that I don't think she feels she has permission to have or to feel or to voice or to act. You know, there are things that innately she might go, oh, I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not allowed to do that, even though that's her feeling. And what does that create inside of her? But if we can show examples where this is a family dynamic, then there's, not, there's an identifier there for everyone. There's things that people can see and learn from and benefit from. I think when you go back to inclusion, that is why it's so important, that classroom, that acceptance. Yeah. And then also on TV, just people that maybe never really have come across anybody with In the classroom. In the classroom. Now they've seen someone on TV and they go, oh, okay. I can more relate to that, possibly. You had mentioned wouldn't change a thing, and I, I remember they, they do have a book, a wonderful book, that uh, they were so kind to send us, too. And any parent with a child with Down syndrome or who has a child that even hasn't been born yet could email them at wcatbook at gmail.com and get a free copy. And it's, it's a really beautiful book of just pictures of, of beautiful children with Down syndrome. It's wonderful. And you can put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. I, it's so great. We find so many wonderful groups in the UK. And, and it's... Yes, there's a lot of really good really stuff out there, actually, yes. So, Mary, Benjamin is 14. He will be next month, yes. He will be next month. And um, now you're entering into a new a phase, a new milestone of adolescence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, we had just been talking about that we should 
have the conversation about adolescence because Liam is not there yet. And we're seeing now at 11, that same shift that we saw in our daughter, Sophia, you know, maturing, maturing, the want for privacy, um, just different things. And uh, would you like to talk about what that experience has been for you? Um, And the whole thing has been impacted by obviously um, COVID in the last year, although some aspects of that have actually helped us in some ways. in that, I mean, we haven't sort of sat down and had the sex talk per se, but we've kind of we're dealing with the whole adolescence thing incrementally. He is so fascinated about everything, and actually, it shouldn't really have come as a surprise to me that he's actually quite fascinated by the way his body is changing, and that's uh, and he's quite happy about that. You know, I mean, it, we were quite worried when uh, the first lockdown finished. We went back to school because he he had a lovely time. You know, he was very very proud of the fact he's got hair under his armpits and wants to tell everyone. And I think, oh, please don't go into school and say. <laughs> but uh, because he doesn't have much speech, and this is something we're trying to get a bit of a handle on, because we had assumed when he was younger it was to do with his hearing impairment, but I think there's actually something else going on. He has more understanding than he can actually create. He reminds me, look, my mother had a series of mini strokes before she died and um, she knew exactly what she wanted to say and she would form it in her mind and she would open her mouth and go, would you go, could come out. And it's the same for Ben sometimes. He does have quite a lot. He has a lot of individual words. He can't really form sentences very easily, uh, but he knows what he wants to say. And he's actually, I, I think, um, you know, it's flipping the narrative, actually. I think he's an extraordinarily skilled communicator because, you know, in terms of accessing the support he needs, we need to put it in terms of what he can't do. But in actual fact, he's very, very good at getting his point across and expressing what he wants and how he's feeling. So that, that's encouraging. Um, but what is worrying and it makes him extremely vulnerable is his speech isn't clear to people who don't know him really well. So we're working really hard on that. Um, but sorry, I'm slightly digressing here, but what I was trying to say was um, we've tried to make him feel, we have a, a joke about it really, we have what's called a grumpometer. So, you know, he's, he's a grumpy teenager some days and um, sometimes there's a reason for it, sometimes there isn't a reason for it, but we've tried to create the space for him to know it's okay not to be okay that he can be grumpy sometimes, and that's just part of being 13. You know, it's just just the way it is. Um, in terms of saying about how the pandemic has impacted, I think actually, you know, he, he's a very, very affectionate child. He loves to hug people. And um, prior to COVID, it was quite difficult because he would sometimes hug complete strangers and with all the kind of issues that go along with that. But um, because we've had to really drill it into him that, you know, um, we at the moment we can't hug but it has given us an opportunity to really work on, um, you know, you can't do high fives, you do fist bumps instead. And, and that's in a way, it's been a way into kind of the notion of consent. And, you know, it, it's been a way of approaching the uh, the whole issue of adolescence, I think. And he's been very good about it. We've not got into the phase where he's desperate for a girlfriend. So I think we'll kind of cross that when we come to it. But, um, you know, he has friends at school. And in fact, he has very, um, his annual review last year, um, the, the, the paperwork from school was lovely because it described him as having a magnetic personality that people warm to him. And, and that's, you know, he, he, he doesn't have kind of typical friendships, partly because of his speech. He just, he, you know, he cannot um, engage in conversation. And actually that was really hard for him during lockdown because we did have Zoom sessions with his friends, but you know even with his friends with down syndrome within the school they have so much more speech than he's got so um he kind of got a little bit left behind and a little bit frustrated with those zoom sessions but um well zoom sessions could be they're so driven by by voice and yeah. conversation that... yes yes a friend of mine described ben, uh, when he was quite little as you know communicating with his whole body which we all do but he's very reliant on that and i think you know zoom sessions take away from that somehow even though you can see the person it's just not well, I hadn't thought about the fact that hugging is so encouraged with our children. Outsiders always want to give Liam a hug. They they encourage it. They say, "Come on, buddy, hug me." And but then there's this age where you know he's 11 now. But in four years, some people are going to be like, "Okay, now I don't want a 15 year old hugging me." Let's say, but we're not giving Liam the the time that maybe he needs to to adjust. It's like all of a sudden it's like, "Well, I I don't want to be hugged." So maybe I need to be more conscious about this and maybe COVID could, could be a way to, to ha- help the transfer of 
fist bumps and elbow bumps and stuff and and to make it I don't know if it would make it easier for him because I don't know if it would bother him. I mean, I mean, I guess it could be a little. I feel like most of the hugs come from people going, "Hey, come hug me." Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's the miscommunication because he wants to hug his friends, but who doesn't want to hug our friends? I mean, that was what our daughter wanted for Christmas last year. That was the one thing on her list was to be able to hug my friends. I'm like, but a ten or eleven year old child hugging a complete stranger can be a oh, but a fifteen, sixteen year old doing that, and you don't really have a lot of time there to to adjust. You know, I read a really nice post the other day that was we spend so much time trying to teach our children how to adapt to be around other people. Why not teach the other people to be around our children? children? So it's about it's about removing. I think it's because there's there's so many stereotypes. You know, when you said that your son was a grumpy teenager, I love that because I mean, (laughs) All we ever heard about Liam was what an angel and he's so and I'm like, what? No, he is a 100% human with every single emotion. And again, I'm just going to bring I'm just going to bring it I haven't said inclusion in a little while. So I'm just going to bring it back to inclusion (laughs) that if you if you're around this person, and it's the truth, it's, you know, I'm, I'm already talking to Liam at 11 about feel all your feelings because he was upset the other day and he was like, no, I'm good. I'm happy. And it clearly comes from someone saying, are you happy? Like we don't, we don't use that verbiage. And I was like, it's okay to feel whatever you feel, Liam. You can, you're allowed to feel yeah, we've these instructed feelings. Teachers and, and therapists to, uh, you know, what we wouldn't like is, Hey, come on, buddy, give me a smile like that. Like he doesn't have to you give don't you do a smile. You don't do that to other can, people. You know, it's one of the stereotypes around in Down syndrome, isn't it? That they're always happy. And it's, you know, just no, <laughs> you know, have the full range of emotions like anyone else. And, and, and another one that irritates me enormously is that, that people with Down syndrome are stubborn. And I think, well, really, you know, um, we use sign language with Ben. Um, and uh, also in my job, I regularly have to do training to do with sign language. And they always start with this kind of um, exercise where they put an image on the screen and they say, you've got to tell the person next to you without signing or using any words what's going on you know that's his reality 24 7 so of course there are times when he's being stubborn because he cannot express what he's trying to express you know don't wonder at it just you know accept that that's his reality it's it's not it's not something innate to down syndrome it's an act to our you know it's like you were saying about um, expecting our children to learn about how to interact with the world we're not spending near, we're not investing nearly enough in understanding their world and getting into their experience of of their reality you know Liam as well, he has a high cognitive, but his expressive is is coming in. We're, we're working on sentences. We're working a lot. We do use sign language as well, uh, which helps him for other people to understand him. And that was one of the things that I brought in. I think it was maybe the last IEP or the one before because they automatically want to use that lack of expressive to infer that his cognitive is lower than it is. And I then explained to him that my son knows two languages. He knows English and he knows sign language. So he's learned another language. He's, he's working really hard to help you understand him. You've got to meet him halfway. There's no relationship that you have in your life, or at least not a healthy relationship where you do all the work or someone else does all the work and you just sit back. And when it gets to where you want it to be, then we talk. No, it's communication is a two-way street. And one of the things that teachers or other people out there need to understand is when you have a cold and your voice goes, you have laryngitis and you slowly feel your voice going so you can't talk. So, you know, if I came up to you, Mary, and I was like, Hey, Mary, and you didn't understand me. And then I try to say it and then I try to do it. And then eventually I'm just not going to, I'm just going to get a chalkboard and write something. And then I'm not going to say it by the end of the or week. Or you'll see Mary coming and you'll go, uh-uh, I'm going to walk this way. I don't even want to. But you know what I mean? Like if, if we understand that, that instead of just being on the outside, if there's an understanding that my child is working so hard to get you to understand what he's saying. And if for one minute you were in his shoes, how would you react? Yeah. Well, you were talking about the transition and you had said that he's starting to see changes and feel changes and want to talk about those changes. You, you, had, you said you hadn't had the sex talk yet. How do you address those things? And did you talk to him before he started to have physical changes uh, that his body would be changing? 
Well, it kind of all started really to happen with the first lockdown. And I kind of, you know, it wasn't the kind of most, in a way, the most immediate thing we had to deal with. It was more trying to help him understand why suddenly school was stopped and suddenly he couldn't see his friends and family except on a screen. So um, we did have lots of talks about, you know, it's because you're a big boy now and you're getting older and, and trying to frame it in terms that he can understand. Uh, I'm kind of waiting on, we have um, a national organisation, the Down Syndrome Association, and they do uh, run courses for parents and professionals on puberty and adolescence. And actually one of the benefits of lockdown um, is that they used to do these as physical um, meetings around the country and they were never in the part of the country where we live. So, but now they've of course have gone online. So I'm hoping to actually uh, attend one of those courses and then hopefully that will help me as a way in. Um, uh, you know, his school as well uh, will be involved with this. I'd like to attend one of those classes. That would be amazing. Is that a class online? Online that you yeah. can? Yes. Well, we'll get the details of that. when We'd love to share that yeah. in the show notes because I think that is the every new unknown. It's the same that was with our daughter. Like I always felt with her that as soon as I felt like I knew what I was doing, the next day she decided to do and become someone else. And and that went a lot quicker. Those shifts were quicker. So maybe I have a little bit of time to prepare knowing what's coming around the corner. How do I prepare so I can support him? And I know there's books out there, but you said this too, Mary, is that I don't think there's enough information out there for this point. You, you get an influx of information of, of babies with Down syndrome. That's one of the reasons I'm really uh, delighted that you've invited me to talk to you, because as you say, there's a lot out there for babies and toddlers. I feel there's quite a bit about entering adulthood, but the teenagers are kind of a bit lost in terms of our children, you know, information and support and help out there. And I think that really needs to be addressed. It's a huge area, isn't it? What would you share about your journey so far over the last three years into adolescence that you wish that you had going into it? I spent all my adult life working with teenagers. So I suppose, you know, I feel comfortable around teenagers. It doesn't, it, it's not a huge for teenagers sort of thing. I, I like the company of teenagers. I like being around them. I like their kind of energy and, and excitement about life and, and complexity of it all. And, and, and so I suppose I was within my comfort zone there. Also, I kind of feel, you know, it's helped me as a parent in a way that Ben's not my oldest child. You know, I did have the experience of uh, his older sister, who's now 19. And we, we all hear about the terrible twos. And none of my children were terrible when they were two. That kind of came later in a way. Um, I'm not saying it's been without challenges. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just saying that it, in some ways it's actually been easier than I was expecting, which has been good. We're fortunate in that Ben is a very um, easygoing. He, I mean, he's, he's not lacking in complexity. I don't mean that. But he... He does get frustrated sometimes. I'm not denying that. He does. But given the difficulties he has with speech, you know, he could get incredibly frustrated, but he, he, he doesn't very often. He's very, very kind of um, very grounded individual. So we've been very fortunate. I know that there are a lot of challenges out there. And I think there can be very unpredictable things. You know, I mean, I, as I say, I work in a special school and, and um, sometimes we experience with students when puberty kicks in, really 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 extraordinary um changes in behaviors and you know and it can be very very extreme and it can be very short-lived too but it so far we've not um experienced that with ben and you know i've been incredibly impressed with this way he's taken that you know he doesn't fully understand what's gone on in the last year with with covid but he's he's he does take things in his stride he, he makes me proud every day because he does manage all sorts of situations that we we kind of worry about how he's going to deal with them and he just somehow does it you know <laughs> I'm very conscious that um you know he's rapidly approaching adulthood and I think one of the big things that we're facing is we we kind of hope that he'll be one of these children that suddenly does speak because it does happen sometimes with children with down syndrome that they they lack their speech and suddenly something clicks and then it happens but we're having to face the the reality that it may never happen for Ben and his speech may never be clear and that has enormous implications for him as an adult. So we're, we're trying to kind of get our head around that at the moment, and that's not easy. 
So, um, um, we have, you know, there's a lot of things we're having to educate ourselves about in that, you know, he's nearly 14 when, when he reaches the age of 16, a whole load of legal things kicking that aren't really the case yet. So um, I don't really have the knowledge and the tools to deal with that yet. I'm very aware that it's fast approaching and I'm going to have to kind of deal with that soon. What kind of legal things kick at 16? Is that adulthood? It's simple things like um, bank accounts, that kind of thing, and whether he will be deemed to have capacity. And if he's deemed to not have capacity, you know, we have to have things in place to manage his finances and that, that kind of thing and um, medical treatment. You know, it does have huge implications for all areas of his life, really. So for all that you know about adolescents and teenagers and how you said you were comfortable around teenagers, there's a lot that you need to learn in this specific avenue. Yeah. How are you feeling with that transition? Because I know these big transitions can be overwhelming. They certainly can, yes. Yeah. Um, for many people with children with, uh, who are disabled, it's it's what happens to them when we're no longer here is a terrifying thing. You know, I think Ben at the moment has a really good quality of life. He loves his life. He loves who he is. And he, he's really not happy in the sense of always happy but he you know he's a really contented child he has a good life but we want him to be able to live his best life when there may not be appropriate um, work opportunities for him and I want him to have meaningful experiences if, if that's not the case if he can't work and if he can work, I think we're going to have to really think outside the box. It's going to be some sort of work that he can do. I mean, he's very, very good at photography. And I think that's something I want to explore a bit more with him as he gets older. And I think that's something, you know, I think I think the thing is, he, he loves his dance. He likes music and he likes to take photographs. He just has to have these means of expressing himself because he can't do it with speech. So That's really where art comes in, just to be able to express. I think that's so beautiful. And I love that. Does he have any dreams that he talks about? Does he ever talk about what he wants to be or what he wants to do? He doesn't really. And I get, I do get answers from time to time. And it, it's tough because he very much lives in the moment. You know, I, <laughs> I don't think he knows really. You know, obviously, I don't think he knows. I, th- I think he thinks he's going to go to school for the rest of his life. And, and <laughs> that's what his life is because that's what his life is now. You know, his, his older sister is going to go to university next year. And I think that's going to be a very big change for him because they have this incredibly close bond. But also it will help him start to learn that you become an adult and things change in your life and you could live in a different place and you won't be going to school with your school friends every day. There are different options available. So I think that might help him learn. Um, he won't go off to university, but he will do different things when he leaves school. Um, I mean, actually, what's quite exciting in our local area is that they are exploring, um, various bodies are exploring provision for 19 to 25-year-olds, which wasn't happening until quite recently. So I'm kind of watching this space because I don't quite know how that's going to look. You're a fantastic advocate, Mary. You really are. He's so he's so fortunate to have you as an advocate. And, and honestly, the community just, you, because you're paving the way. Like, I expect to learn a lot from you, you know, as far as our journey with Liam. So I I just want to say thank you for that. And just just take a minute. I don't know. I know as a parent, sometimes we don't think of that. But just take a minute to just you're a great advocate and, and just always looking out for Ben's future. What I'm starting to see with us is that you're right, Liam is in the moment. It's such a gift. And for me to say I'm striving to live in the moment, there's like certain connotations that that go with that. And I'll do my yoga in the morning and it's a real strive. Like I'm trying to learn to just be present. And then I have Liam who is always present in that moment. Like sometimes I have to remind everybody when we're sitting at the dinner table that when they shift that conversation quickly, because that's how our brains work, that you need to give him a moment to transition especially if you're talking about something big, like he, his friend is going to move. And I was saying, oh, but we can go here. And he was like, no. (laughs) But when you think about that and you think about the communication, that might be something that if you told me my best friend was going to move, which I believe she is, (laughs) um, in my heart, I said, no, (laughs) I did. I really did. But to her, I said, how exciting (laughs) for me because I wasn't raised in any kind of inclusive environment. I didn't learn about other people and how they learn. For me, I'm always growing as, as he grows 
as his brain changes, as his, as everything changes to adapt as well. And to remember that things get done differently, but that strive that I, it is something that I actually strive to do. And he already has that, that gift that I, I try to cultivate in my life because I know the benefits of being present, right? I know those benefits in my life, the fear that diminishes because we're not like thinking about something that doesn't even exist. And if I look at Liam, that's Liam. Fear is an abstract idea. Like if I said, what do you fear? He'd be like, what? But if he's watching a movie and something's scary, he'd say, that's scary, right? Right now. Right now, that's scary. And, And as you're talking about how you as the parent is going forward, And our fears lie really on things that don't exist yet because we don't, we're we're just going through and and creating that path. I guess for like a neurotypical life, you have ideas of what it's supposed to be. But those ideas, yeah, but Mm -hmm. those ideas are really being diminished. Those ideas are kind of like, no, just create your life. It's not like this and then this and then this and then this. As we're talking, I feel I feel that shift in you that now we're going into something new that's unknown and it's automatic to all of a sudden step out of this moment like with, with Liam. I'll step out of how, you know, great the day is and, and wonderful he's doing and all of his abilities and everything I've learned. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, what am I gonna do? What, someone asked the other day, what high what middle school will he go to? And I was like automatically just inside you know, I felt that, that crumble that I, I don't know. And I don't know is, can be a gift. I don't know is, is really everything for me. Most things I don't know. You can make plans and plans and plans. And how often do the plans of your life continue Look at the what, way you I mean, thought? We learned that go, with COVID, right? you know, it's been a great year, like I said, supporting Liam and really watch him thrive over the year and I have all those gifts, but then all of a sudden I realize it's May and IEPs are coming up and I have a physical reaction to that. Like I forget all of the greatness and now I'm in that, that fear place. And I guess what I'm trying to do is to, is minimize the toll that those things take and just really see it, like see the gifts that aren't seen. Maybe it's looking at him and how he, he takes on the world. If I really just just stay there and then support him, it's different. It's a different place. And it's a good place. And it's a place that more people should know about. And it's a place that I wish that I had in my life always, even like before Liam, that, that insight into, you know, just being present or what really matters. And I think that when we have a a community and a system that starts to really support everyone, then those fears, that weight, that weight that I watched come over you, those things can be lifted because it's not the same weight that you have when you think of your daughter and her future. And it's my hope for this community really is that having conversations and, and I think we're the ones that are making the change. Right. As a, as a community, like the community is making the change, the community is making the change. And I think that's, you know, that's our, our right and responsibility is for our voices to be heard and, and lift each other up and make the changes that need to be to where these the things that we shouldn't have to fight for, the, the things that we shouldn't have to worry about, just let them be fixed so that we can go about really being present and, and focusing on what matters like the way my son does. But we're a community here to lift each other up. I think that network of um, other people in the same situation is really, really important. We were fortunate in that prior to Ben starting school, um, we had a great support network. He went to um, a preschool play group for uh, one, one afternoon a week for children with you know, all sorts of disabilities. And he went to a play group for hearing impaired children. And the, the other parents I met there were, you know, kept me going. And then Ben started school and suddenly my network had disappeared. You know, um, that was tough. I found that really hard. That's one of the reasons that, you know, I do the advocacy I do is that I, I did feel alone at times and I just don't want, 
you know, I think, as I say, things are improving and all the social media stuff that's out there. I think that there's much more ways of connecting within the community that weren't necessarily there a generation ago, but it's, it's important. It really matters. Well, you're not alone, Mary, and we're so happy that we have a new friend. And we thank you for your advocacy. And, and I yeah. mean, of course, it's going to help Ben, but you're helping our entire community. And and it's a worldwide community now. And it was so lovely getting to know you and meet you. Oh, it's been absolutely a delight to talk to you both. Thank you. <laughs> Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. From the top.